On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we want to talk about alcohol. We're going to revisit a a topic that we have studied before, but it is so important. We want to discuss the idea of social drinking. We're calling our study tonight another look because we have looked before, but we just want to be reminded about how we should view the question of so-called moderate or social drinking. What does the Bible say? A very important topic. Unfortunately, it's a controversial topic. Now, it wasn't a controversial topic 20 years ago. It is a controversial topic Exactly. It's becoming more controversial. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- 381-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, May 20th, 2021. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Great to be with you, Jacob. Good to be with you. Kyle's behind the controls. Kyle, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Good to be with you. And uh, we want to hear from you on the other end of the line tonight, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com or the chat window to the bottom of your video feed. And this is one of those topics where we probably will have listeners who disagree with us. And uh, we want to hear from you, especially tonight and any time that you hear this program, questions at collegeview.com is the email address. I hope people realize that we are open to having what we teach analyzed. And even if you disagree, we invite your participation. Uh, on this subject, for instance, if you disagree with us, we're going to, I think everybody knows, but we'll tell you right up front, we're going to take the position that Christians should not drink alcohol at all. If you disagree with that view, we would invite you to come here in person, call us on the phone for a, for a, do a Skype or through a Skype, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. We could do lots of ways. We will give you a chance to express your opinion, to differ with our, with our understanding of the scriptures. We're, we're, we're not a closed system here. We're open to your input, even if you disagree with us. All right. Uh, again, questions at collegeview.com if you're listening after the fact. Maybe listen in the podcast version. Questions at collegeview.com. But if you're listening to us tonight, give us a call, 877-381-4567. Join in the chat room with other listeners. See Brian in California, uh, Dwight and Michelle in Iowa, Grant and Janie up in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, and others uh, that need to sign in there. So Robert in. has been in the chat room the last several weeks. Robert, we don't know where you're from. Give us a give us a, a indication of your geographical location there. Robert's been participating s- several weeks recently. And, from parts and, unknown. From parts unknown. Yeah. Well, tonight's program is brought to us by uh, Kyle. Kyle is the one who came across an article that we want to reference in just a, a little bit. Uh, it was actually surprisingly an anti-drinking article, uh, news coverage that was found on the CNN website. Quite shocking, but we, we're going to reference that here. Yeah, you, you blew your doors off, Kyle. Yeah, which it's on. It just popped in my uh, news feed, which I usually peruse. I'll just I'll usually glance at the headlines from CNN, but I'm trying to dive in. But I was, I was just. The headline kind of caught me, so any, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, 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 a lot of people saw that, Kyle, because you were the first to send it out over, but 
I had two or three others oh, really? who, who independently, who didn't know that we were already on it, uh, sent it to me today. So people wow, were you paying got some notice. scoopers out there. Yeah, people were paying yeah. notice. Yeah. To, yeah. So we'll reference that in a minute. Let me read you uh, the questions we sent to our update list earlier today. Get on our list if you're not. Send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Say, add me to the list. Here's what our questions were to our update list earlier today. I thought I just wanted to know from our listening uh, partners, number one, are you aware of any statements, articles, and so forth wherein Christians are making a taking a soft or compromising position on social drinking? I am aware of too many of those things. I just wonder if some of our listeners were also aware. Number two, all agree that the Bible condemns drunkenness, but can it be proved that the Bible teaches Christians to practice total abstinence from drinking alcohol? Number three, is there any current science that speaks to the dangers of drinking alcohol? I think that's where we'll bring that article in. Number four, what do we know about the common practice of first century Christians in regards to the consumption of alcohol? Number five, explain how the word wine is used in the Bible. Does it always mean an intoxicating drink? Number six, true or false, men in Bible times did not know how to preserve grape juice to prevent fermentation. Yes or no, explain your answer. Number seven, did Jesus produce alcoholic wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee? You know, that's one of the most popular arguments in defense of social drinking. Oh, Jesus made wine. Let's talk about that. We want to get to that at the end of our program. I think all of our, probably the vast majority, at least of our listeners, know the answer to that question. But we want to make sure we've got that well pinned down. So first of all, Jacob, uh, how did our emailers respond? Are you aware of any statements, articles, and so forth, wherein Christians are taking a soft or compromising position on social drinking? Get a load of this. Kent from Cotton, Georgia says, in the 12-20-2019 edition of the Christian Chronicle, Bobby Ross, editor-in-chief, authored an article regarding changing attitudes among liberal churches of Christ regarding that of social drinking. He spoke of visiting a local church in the northeastern part of the U.S. where the members collectively engaged in eating a common meal together. During this collective action of this particular local church, participants engaged in social drinking. Also in recent years, Thomas Rhett, a country music artist and alumnus of Lipscomb University, had a single hit entitled Beer with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Grant says, Brethren are teaching that drinking alcoholic beverages in moderation is not sinful. I was given a slide justifying the use of intoxicating drink in moderation, along with an article teaching that Jesus changed the water to intoxicating wine in John chapter 2, the wedding feast of Canaan and Galilee. Brethren are using intoxicating wine as an emblem at the Lord's Supper. I experienced this while attending services in Pisa, Italy. I wonder if he saw the Leaning Tower while he was there. Uh, I, I, I imagine he did. Yeah. Uh, brethren are providing intoxicating drink at lunch after services on the Lord's Day. I experienced this in Pisa, Italy and Munich, Germany. In discussion with a brother in Christ, he indicated it would not be a sin for the two of us to have a can of beer together. You, oh, uh, since, since we just read Grant's, let me share something that Grant showed me recently. This is from a workbook published by, I won't name the author. If I named him, almost everybody listening tonight would know his name. Well known among conservative churches of Christ, formerly associated with Florida College. He, he, he said, uh, Individual differences, uh, i take my glasses off so I can read this fine print. Individual differences do not ob- obligate other members of the church and should not bring division. In other words, we can disagree on these things. So here, here are some examples. 
he mentioned several different things, uh, and among them, he he mentioned growing and or using tobacco, moderate drinking of wine at home, working in the tobacco or liquor industry. Uh, he, he went on to mention choice of apparel like jogging shorts, sports uniforms. Uh, so, but but I thought it was interesting, sad to note that he mentioned that we we can differ over the moderate drinking of alcohol. Uh, that should not cause division among Christians. That's uh, uh, very sad. Here's what Dwight said. Uh, well, Dwight and, and Michelle are have the granddaughters, and so. Uh, their answers are short. We can understand why. <laughs> yes, I've heard from brethren, even a preacher, that social drinking is acceptable as long as you don't get drunk. It, I was asked of him, is it okay if your daughter has an occasional drink then? Uh, or it was asked of him, is it okay if your daughter has an occasional drink? His response was, she's only 16. She's not allowed to drink. Well, why? Why not? Yeah, is why that not? scriptural? Another brother who is also a preacher told me I should fellowship with a church that condones social drinking because the scriptures only teach not to get drunk. Okay. I, I had a. I have, here's another quote from a preacher who also was formerly associated with Florida College, and and I won't name him, but if I did, many of our listeners would know him. This guy says, "I wish I could find a passage in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not ever drink any alcoholic drink.' So far as I know, a passage like that doesn't exist." He says. I think we can. I think I could show him one if he'll listen. Well, I hope we'll show him several tonight. Yeah. Uh, Mohan's up in Chicago. He says, look at the document on KipMcLean.com, uh, titled Revolution Through Restoration 2. Do a word search for wine where the author tries to make the argument that drinking wine is not a sin, but only drinking too much of it is a sin. Uh, I don't know if our, I don't know if that name Kip McKean rings a bell with people still yet. Kip McKean was the guy who was the head of the Boston Church of Christ, became known as yeah. the International Churches of Christ. Yeah. Uh, he, of course, extremely, extremely that, that originated among what we would refer to as liberal Churches of Christ because they went completely off the deep end. But that Kip McKean, who's arguing that you, that you can drink as long as you don't drink too much, He's the he's that guy that that was the founder or principal mover with the Boston Church of Christ. So it is uh, going around, no doubt. So it's out there, yeah. and and so I think I think our listeners' experience is pretty common with our own that this is happening among churches of Christ. You know, we'd like to, we'd like to think that this is maybe only some of the very liberal mainline Protestant denominations that are, are that are lax on these kind of moral questions. It is sad to note that that is not the case and that this this is infecting the church. Worldliness in general is infecting even conservative churches of Christ and and on a what should be a a slam dunk question of on of morality. We've got brethren who are who are getting soft and and wishy-washy. Because Jesus, here's what Kip McKean says, because Jesus uh, created wine as his first miracle and drank wine was celebrating the Lord's Supper, drinking wine is not a sin. Titus 2, verse 3 teaches that we should not be addicted to much wine, implying that some is okay. However, if one drinks too much, it is a sin, drunkenness. Well, when would I know that? You know what I would like to ask him in person is, when would I know where that line is? He says if you drink too much, it's a sin. Well, is it one glass? One big glass? All right. Two small glasses, 
too large glasses? Where is is he the arbiter of that? Does he get to say when it's too much and thus a sin? That, now he agrees, and everybody agrees. There's no argument about this. Being drunk sends somebody to hell. That that will punch your ticket to hell. Get drunk. Well, what what is drunk? Yeah, states don't agree on that. You can different blood alcohol levels constitute driving under the influence in different states. It's not the same everywhere. Which one of those states is right? Yeah. And is there any instruction of God given to us where it's something fuzzy like that? Oh, yeah. You do this, you go to hell. You do this, you don't go to hell. But that middle ground is just sort of fuzzy. Nobody knows exactly where that is. Yeah. So, sort of like fuzzy logic or fuzzy math. You know, yeah. they talk, We don't know what it really means. God's not fuzzy about the truth that he reveals to us. Yeah, and so nobody can define what drunk is. The states can't do it. And people would say, well, you know when you are. Well, how do you know when you are unless you get, you, you're there one time? Yeah. I, I can't know how much I can drink without getting drunk until I do it. Yeah. And, that's, and so I have to sin in order to, how, to learn how not to do what God said yeah. don't do. It just doesn't make sense. It's, you would, can't, you apply, would you apply that rule to other sins? Yeah. For instance, abstain from fornication. Yeah. Well, I don't know until I've actually crossed that line. Yeah. Yeah. Or thou shalt not steal. Well, I've, I've, You're going to have to steal once to figure yeah. out where the line is. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't argue that about any other sin. No. Let's grab a maybe, break. Maybe the Bible's doing more than just condemning drunkenness. It is, and we're going to show uh. that when we come back from this break. We're going to show that the Bible not only condemns drunkenness, but it can be proved that the New Testament teaches Christians to practice total abstinence from drinking alcohol. All right, we're going to get into that on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. You won't want to miss... Here's a quick thought. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made... And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 34, 6. How great and powerful is God. He spoke the universe into existence. Even the earth operates in precision by his will. Find ways to bring praise to our awesome God today. Seize the day. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Parents need to discipline their children when they are young so that they will discipline themselves when they are grown. A church is no more to be blamed for the bad people in it than a hospital is to be blamed for the sick people that are in it. By perseverance, the snails reached the ark. You never really lose until you quit trying. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight as we talk about alcohol. Look what the Bible says about it. Uh, some are saying it only condemns being drunk, and we're saying that's not the full picture, and we're going to look at that for now. All right, so our second question was, all agree that the Bible condemns drunkenness, but can it be proved? I, I really would emphasize proved, not just speculated, but can it be proved that the Bible teaches Christians to practice total abstinence from drinking alcohol? I think we could give a real affirmative yes. It says it is condemned. In other words, this, is, is, this has to be stressed, Jacob. It's We're commanded to abstain from alcohol. It's not just a recommendation. It's not just good advice. 
It's a command. And and we've we've covered this several times on the Virtual Bible Study, but it's been a number of years since we looked thoroughly into this subject. As, uh, back in back in 2015, we had three. We had a series of three lessons on this subject, in fact, on the Virtual Bible Study. But a, a key word in this discussion is the Greek word nepho. Mm-hmm. If you spell it with with English letters, it's N-E-P-H-O. Four times in the New Testament it's translated as sober. Three of those times it's found in, or three of those instances are found in the book of First Peter. Let me read them to you. First Peter 1, 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. First Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So all of those, I mean, just take what Peter said in three instances there in the epistle of First Peter. We're commanded to be sober. And that's the Greek word nepho. But what does nepho mean? Well, let me give you some definitions from Greek authorities. Nepho means, by according to the New English, the New Englishman's Greek concordance, it means to abstain from wine, thus to be sober. Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says completely unaffected by wine. Yep. Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible says to abstain from wine. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Word says signifies to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Mm-hmm. So let's work on that last one. Uh, the experts agree that it, it means to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Okay, that's what. In fact, that's exactly what Vine said: to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Now, this therefore means total abstinence because. Medical experts tell us that alcohol begins to influence us immediately. Remember, we're supposed to be free from the influence. But alcohol begins to influence us at the very first inkling of of participation, the very first consumption of alcohol. Uh, Here's... Uh, here's what, boy, I, I think medical doctors hate for us to, to do medical research on the Internet. You know, they yeah, self, yeah. self-diagnose. Don't, don't tell your doctor. Here. Here's WebMD. I think a lot of people recognize the website WebMD. WebMD.com says 30 seconds after your first sip, alcohol races into your brain. It slows down the chemicals and pathways that your brain cells use to send messages that alters your mood, slows your reflexes, and throws off your balance. You, <coughs> excuse me. You also. <coughs> you want me to finish that? There you go. You got it. You also go ahead. You, you also can't think straight, which you may not recall later because you'll struggle to restore things in long-term memory. All right. <coughs> so that's telling us we're immediately under the influence from our first sip of alcohol. Well, if we're commanded to be sober and thus be free from the influence of intoxicants, that putting those two things together necessarily means you can't drink any at all. You're commanded not to drink any at all. Sobriety, commanded sobriety 
dictates that you cannot drink any alcohol at all. And uh, and you, you, it, it, the first, you know, it's starting to influence your judgment here. It, it, this this <coughs> th- there's no there's no scriptural. They got no scriptural uh, stake here. They got this. no axe to grind. And they're saying it, it influences your judgment as soon as you start drinking it. Yeah. And now again, that that line of drunkenness, which is somewhat fuzzy, but it's going to send me to hell. I've got to be able to discern that now when my judgment is already impaired. Okay. So the guy who's arguing, well, the first sip doesn't it doesn't impair your judgment enough to say that you're drunk. But as you say, so I'm going to take three or four drinks, and then I'm supposed to, my judgment is still supposed to be good enough to say better not drink anymore because that will put me over the limit. Yeah. My judgment is increasingly impaired the more I drink, but. When I've already drunken a lot out here, I'm supposed to make a sound judgment about not getting drunk. It just listen, the whole thing is just ridiculous. It doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about impairing your judgment. Lots of scriptures we can look at to show that it impairs your judgment. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 10, you remember the story in Leviticus chapter 10, what happened there to Nadab and Abihu? Yeah. And you know what God said right after that about the profane fire? They're struck dead. They're they're lying dead. And one of the first things God says after that is he gives some instructions for the priest. And he says, um, uh, well, let me find it here. Um, Oh, uh, yeah. Verse nine, Leviticus chapter 10, verse nine. Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons. He's telling this to Aaron. The priest. When, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, and that you may put a difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes of the Lord, which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. Now, why would he do that right after Nadab and Abihu got struck dead? Could it have been Nadab and Abihu had been... Nip it a little it, bit it in might the bottle. Have been, but even if even if you couldn't, I mean, there's an implication there. But even if you couldn't prove that, he's he saying you, don't let your judgment be impaired by wine and strong. Why drink. not to do that? Because so, when you drink yeah. it, you cannot tell between clean and unclean, between right and wrong. Yeah, yeah, good point. And good point. he says, lay off of it. Don't drink it at all. Don't just don't get drunk. Don't drink it at all. Now you mentioned the word nepho, and one of the places where that's used is in First Peter chapter five, verse eight. And the connection there was with fighting off the devil. And notice how he's mentioned there. He's mentioned as the roaring lion seeking about whom he may devour. We're playing with fire here. Yeah. We have to have all of our senses at all times. So he's he's basically saying there, don't don't impair your your ability to resist Satan by be be at your be be at your peak, be at the top of your ability level. Because, because you've got this roaring lion who's tracking you down. He says, don't just don't be drunk. Don't have a few. He says, abstain because you have an adversary, the devil, that's seeking whom you may devour. Kyle, how many beers do you want to have before you get thrown in the ring with the lion? Well, I think any, any uh, lion tamer would, I'm sure they would say zero, but, uh, but you know, anybody who's social drinks and they're just, they, well, I'll just, you know, this is just this one sip, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness later, and everything's going to be all good. But you know, I think you're going to you're you're searing your conscience with a hot iron after a little while. You're like, well, you're just going to keep turning up and keep asking for forgiveness. Everything's going to be okay after a while. You know, I'm just going to drink later, and I'm going to, you know, make sure I pray to God and everything. He'll, he'll forgive me. But I think you're going to sear your conscience after a while. You're just not going to care. You're not going to you're not going to care about anything. You're just going to sear your conscience 
with that alcohol because you're addicted and everybody else is doing it. All right. So. Yep, yep. All right. Uh, Kent says on this question, he says, it can be proven from the scriptures that moderate recreational drinking of alcoholic beverages is sinful. He's going to make an argument. I want to hold the second, the last, the rest of his answer on that for just a minute. He's going to make what I think is a good argument from 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4, but hang on to that for just a minute. Okay. Grant says, 1 Peter 4, verse 3, he's going to make the same argument. I want to hold that argument from 1 Peter 4, verse 3. He mentions... Uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober, commands us to be sober. Ephesians 5, verse 8 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul commanding us not to get intoxicated, to make drunk, to grow drunk. This is an action ongoing stated as a command. And, and so we would be beginning the process of intoxicating or getting drunk by taking the first sip of intoxicating drink. Uh, this verse prohibits us from taking the first sip. Dwight and Michelle, yes, I believe it does. When you look at the word sober in the scriptures, the Greek word is nepho, Strong's number 3525, and it, that means to be sober, to abstain from wine. I've always wondered how a Christian knows what drunkenness is unless he's been there. So in order not to get drunk, you need to know your limit. But how do you know your limit till you get there? Exactly. So you have to first sin to know where your limit is so you won't sin anymore. All Say, right. I'm puzzled as you are, Dwight. Yeah. All right. All right. Now. How much time we got here? Let's do this real quick. I'm going to skip question three and go to four real quick. What do we know was the common practice of first century Christians in regards to the consumption of alcohol? Well, a verse that I like very much in this discussion is 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. Paul writing to Timothy. We know Paul here's writing to a faithful Christian, writing to the faithful young evangelist Timothy. Timothy was a faithful first century Christian to first in 1 Timothy 5:23, Paul told him, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Now, sometimes, amazingly, the social drinking advocates will try to use that verse to their favor. That's actually not their verse. That's our verse. Because that verse shows here the, the normal established practice of Timothy, a faithful first century Christian, was to drink none at all. He had to be told to take some for a medicinal benefit. But what it proves is that his normal practice was to drink none at all. You know, I've heard Christians say, oh, everybody drank in the first century. That's well known. It was such a it was it was in it was completely across the board. All people drank wine in the first century. No, they didn't. They didn't drink intoxicating wine. Uh, and, And this proves from Timothy's point of view that he had to actually be instructed to do so for a medicinal benefit all right now several of our emailers are going to mention first peter chapter four three and four i think it's a good passage peter says for the time past of our life may suffice stop right there this is what we used to do in other words we wasted i I would paraphrase that by saying peter's saying we wasted enough of our time already doing what The time past of our lives may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust. Then notice these three phrases, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run out with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. So he said, we waste enough time doing that. We've stopped doing that. They, uh, the people of the world, 
now think we're weird because we don't still do those things that we used to do, but we don't do them anymore. The three words. So <clears throat> the Greek word for drunkenness is meth, M-E-T-H-E spelled in English. That's this forbidden drunkenness that everybody agrees to. That's not even mentioned in this passage. Three levels of drinking that are less than total drunkenness are mentioned. Excessive wine is the word oinophilusia. It indicates intoxication, but is a step below meth or drunken. One in such a state staggers, stumbles, or falls into a sleeping stupor. The next word, revelings, is from the Greek word komos, which suggests intoxication, but not out of it. He's just got a high. He's got a buzz, as they say. The third word, banquetings, comes from the Greek word potos. R.C. Trench, in his book, Synonyms of the New Testament, says this is drinking without reference to amount, not of necessity excessive. So Trench said, I've heard people argue that Trench didn't know what he's talking about. I'm sure he knows a lot more about the Greek language than I do. He's a published uh, lexographer. he says that, that that last word, so there were, in other words, here's meth, total drunkenness. Peter mentions three levels of drinking that are less than that and condemns them all. And the last level of drinking was banquetings, which very likely does not refer to a, 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 an amount or, or an abundance or, or too much. Just simply, uh, it's not necessarily condemning excess. It's just condemning the consumption of alcohol. So I think that's, that passage is a pretty good one, First Peter 4, 3 and 4. Let's read what our emailers say before the break, Jacob. Yeah, here's what Kent says. It can be proven from the scriptures that moderate recreational drinking of alcoholic beverages is sinful. Kent says there are various New Testament words that refer to the entire range of degrees of drunkenness as being sinful. Only to Fallujah and Potos is used in First Peter 4, verse 3, in contrast to that of excessive wine. Therefore, the practice of recreational slash moderate drinking is classified as being sinful. This term speaks with reference to drinking parties, uh, cosmos, as used in Romans 13, verse 13, which mean to revel. And according to the basic standard Greek and English lexicon, also speaks with reference to drinking parties. Galatians chapter 5, verse 21 refers to cosmos as a work of the flesh. Metha is translated drunkenness in Romans 13, verse 13. The basic application of the term speaks with reference to that of intoxication in any degree. Such would therefore be inclusive of moderate drinking as well as drinking in excess. So, so what Kent's saying, and I think what all the experts agree, is that the that a word study of all the words that denote drinking intoxicants suggests that any word that de, that that deals with the drinking of intoxicants proves that it's a condemned practice. Here's what uh, Grant said on that. Uh, he said drunk. It, this uh, condemns drunkenness, debauchery, extreme indulgence, carousing, revelry, unrestrained party or celebration, carousal, and drinking party. Literally, potos as a drinking without reference to amount. The verb is potozo, uh, to give to drink without regard to amount, as in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, give a drink a cup of cold water. This would include drinking at a cocktail party, sipping the wine, social drinking. These three words describe a process one experiences going from one drink at a party to unrestrained party into extreme indulgence to intoxicating drink. Four verses down, Peter goes on to write in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Peter here is condemning, uh, or commanding us to be sober, to obtain from wine, to be free from the use of intoxicants. Exactly right. All right. Um, and and the, I think we've got the others. That's, okay. That's all right. We've got to get a break. But again... 
That goes to the question that we ask, um, what, what can we know? Is there any, uh, um, can, can it be proved that, well, first of all, we proved that, it, that the New Testament teaches us to practice total abstinence, and we know that first century Christians, we know their practice was to abstain. Don't miss the point there. When we're looking at 1 Timothy 4, those three terms, which is fine to look at those three terms. But don't forget, Peter was saying, we wasted enough time formally doing these things. And then he says, and now people think we're weird because we don't do that anymore. So all, all, all of those varying degrees of drinking, Peter says, we don't do them anymore. So the point we're making there is first century Christians were clearly abstainers. And notice that their activity was was going to be referred to as strange. Yeah. Now, if they're at this drinking party and they're just having one or two glasses of wine, who in their right mind would think they're strange for doing that? Why would they think they're strange? If we have if there's a drinking party and you come and you're sipping wine along with me, how would I think you're strange? I'm not getting drunk. Why would I think you're strange if you're going along with me? You see, they were abstaining. Yeah, that, that's what made them. It, it, like you say, if so, I so we're at a drinking party. You drink and get drunk. I just sip my wine. I don't get drunk. But no, I'm just saying. If no, that no, were, no, it, no, I'm saying yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm it, getting, it, I'm getting drunk, but you're not. Yeah. Go ahead. So you're getting drunk, but I'm not. I'm just sipping a glass of wine. You wouldn't think I'm weird no. in, in that environment. You're, you're taking, you're taking with me. Yeah. The only way that in that environment you would think I was weird is if I wouldn't, if I absolutely refuse to participate at all. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. George in the chat room uh, disagrees. He says it's an argument from silence to say that Timothy didn't otherwise drink. It's an assumption. It could be well, it could well be advice like direction to bring my coat and parchments. That does not necessitate that Timothy never carried a coat of parchments. No, it's not an argument from silence. It says here he doesn't, he didn't drink. He was drinking. He said no, drink no longer water. He was he was he was drinking water. He had to be instructed to drink wine. That's not arguing from the silence. That's arguing from what it says. That's arguing from what he was told to do. Yeah. If he if if he normally drank wine, he wouldn't have to be commanded to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake. Yeah. Uh, if if that, if it, if his practice already included that, then it would have been meaningless for Paul. Paul's statement would be meaningless. If his normal practice included the consumption of wine, yeah, and then Paul's statement would be just senseless. Now, it is not a parallel that when Paul told him to bring coat and parchment, he was asking him to do something. That's different. But now, I, I have some kids who, when it gets cold outside, don't like to put on their coat before they go outside. And now, if I told my kids, it's winter, no longer go outside in a T-shirt, wear a coat, what would you conclude from that? That the kids had been only wearing T-shirts, yeah. and they need to start wearing a coat because no it's getting cold. No longer wear a T-shirt only, yeah. but wear a coat so you won't get sick. That statement would mean up to this point they had not been wearing their and coats. And they had to be told to wear a coat. And had to be told to do so, exactly. Let's right. take a break good, and good get parallel. this week's bullet point. When we get back, we'll take your thoughts. Georgia, we'd, re- we'd welcome uh, some additional comments from you on that in the chat room as well, or give us a call, 877-381-4567. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. There seems to be a natural tendency to concentrate on negative things and to overlook positive ones. 
In particular, we tend to deliberate more on the faults and failings of others and to ignore the good things they are doing. This is especially true in the Lord's church. In fact, we are often more negative and critical of our brethren than we are toward complete strangers. As we deal with our brethren, it's necessary to deal with every problem that arises. We dare not try to sweep under the rug anything that violates the, quote, pattern of sound words found in the scriptures, 2 Timothy 1, verse 13. To do so would, in itself, demonstrate a lack of love. But while maintaining a careful eye for anything that misses the mark, we should also look for opportunities to commend and praise one another. Barnabas, for example, earned his nickname by being one known for the encouragement he offered to his brethren, Acts 4, 36 and 37. When writing to the church at Corinth, Paul had to deal with many problems that existed there. Strong words of rebuke were needed in addressing the issues among these brethren. But despite these negatives, the apostle did not fail to commend their good qualities with expressions like, quote, I thank my God always on your behalf, chapter 1, verse 4, and, quote, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me, chapter 11, verse 2. It's obvious that deserved praise was an important aspect of the message that was sent to that church. We should all do some self-examination to see if we failed in these matters. Are we constantly negative? Are we quick to complain but slow to offer praise? Is our focus on criticism rather than commendation? As a very simple test, ask yourself these questions. When was the last time you offered a word of praise to a brother or sister in Christ? As compared to, when was the last time you complained about something a fellow Christian was doing? That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Dwight Bovet. And I'm Michelle Bovet, and we're from Ames, Iowa. We listen to the virtual Bible study every week, and we invite you to do the same. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over, and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. Back on the program. Good to hear from Dwight and Michelle there. Got a little, look, yeah. got a little ad Coming going from with Dwight and Michelle. Thanks, Dwight and Michelle. Yeah. Uh, we'll remind you this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more at thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. Check it out on YouTube at uh, College View Livestream. Some more Bible study material there, Kyle. Uh, lots of uh, Lots of material that can... Help you in your Bible study. Oh, yeah, it's good. That's a good addition to any Bible study. I think it's uh, got some good study, studies and good uh, sermons out. So All good. right. We want to hear your comments tonight as we talk about alcohol on the program tonight, social drinking. You know, it's amazing the shift in just a short amount of time. You know, religious people in general uh, didn't, didn't weren't known for imbibing in, in years gone by. You remember? I mean, not too long ago, it was... It was alcohol was even banned in in our society. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting study. I don't know if any of our listeners have ever uh, uh, done any analysis of what took place during the years of prohibition in the United States. The the liberal argument is that prohibition was a massive failure in the United States. It actually wasn't. Uh, deaths by alcoholism dropped dramatically during the years of prohibition uh crimes associated with alcohol dropped dramatically uh during the time prohibition was actually success and it was and there was almost no enforcement i think i i read there was i want to say there were just 20 something men Assigned to enforce prohibition nationwide, it may have been more than that, but it's less than a hundred. There, there was almost no federal enforcement of the laws prohibiting the, the the sale and consumption of alcohol. But even at that, it still was a very success in, in terms of its results, very successful. So, you know, 
you, you get this, oh, well, you can't legislate morality. Look at prohibition. It was such a terrible fa- It really wasn't a failure. If you do any real research of that, you'll find that it, 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 depending on what your metrics for success are, it was actually a pretty successful thing. Now, so why the shift? Why, so, why are so many people embracing alcohol now? I think it's the in vogue thing to do, you know. I mean, it's bad to get drunk, but it's kind of cool to you know, sit around and sip wine. And I just think people want to want to. They want that aspect of the world in their lives. I really believe that's all it is. I talked with a man 25 years ago who thought it was wrong to drink alcohol, but he told me he said, "You know, I think I would enjoy it if it wasn't wrong." You know where he stands on that today? He's, he, he, he thinks it's okay. And he's enjoying it. I guess. I guess he is. I don't yeah, know, but yeah. he thinks it's okay. Yeah. And that. And so, maybe we should do what Proverbs chapter twenty three says: Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in a cup, when it moves itself aright. Maybe we need to stop looking at it like it's something in, in favorable ways. It's something desirable. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, because that's what the devil's selling, and that's what the advertisers are selling. That's what our society is selling. Uh, the Bible's saying, don't buy it. Yeah. All right. I asked the question, is there any current science that speaks to the dangers of drinking alcohol? This is where I wanted to bring in this article that sort of prompted our study tonight. This was actually on CNN today. Kyle was the first one to tip us off Kyle to this. gave us the tip. Uh, just let me read some highlights of this. Little, it's not What time was long. that when you sent that, by the way, Kyle? I mean, I woke up early and it was waiting on me. Yeah, it was... Five o'clock this morning. I oh, saw it too early to be reading so, any news. Which I think uh, I'm not sure what time. I, I was very early when I found it. Okay. All right. So here's here's what it says. Uh, the headline is: Drinking any amount of alcohol causes damage to the brain. New study finds. Quote: There's no such thing as a safe level of drinking. With increased consumption of alcohol. Uh, uh, another word, with an increased consumption of alcohol associated with poorer brain health, according to this new study. This study comes from the University of Oxford, no mean institution of higher learning, to be sure. Uh, the researchers noted that drinking had an effect on the brain's gray matter, the regions in the brain that make up, quote, important bits where information is processed, according to the lead author. Uh, who was a senior clinical researcher at Oxford. The more people drank, the less the volume of their gray matter, she said. Brain volume reduces with age and more severely with dementia. Smaller brain also predicts worse performance on memory testing, she explained. Uh, Whilst alcohol, now get this, this is interesting. Whilst alcohol made up a small contribution to this diminished brain performance, it is a greater contribution than other modifiable risk factors, she explained. Uh, the modifiable risk factors are the ones you can do something about. I can't do something about growing old, but I can do something about drinking alcohol. And she said, it's the main thing that I'm in control of that can change the the effect on my brain. We have, all right. Uh, the study goes on to say uh, there's no safe level of drinking. The consumption of any amount of alcohol is worse than not drinking any. They found no evidence that the type of drink, such as wine, spirits, or beer, affected the harm done to the brain. 
Other previous studies have also found that there's no amount of liquor, wine, or beer that is safe for your overall health. Alcohol was the leading factor for disease and premature death in men and women between the ages of 15 and 49 worldwide in the year 2016. It accounted for nearly one out of every 10 deaths that year, according to the medical journal Lancet, published in 2018. But you can go to CNN uh, and just look up drinking alcohol. And this, this article on CNN today was titled, Drinking Any Amount of Alcohol Causes Damage to the Brain. Mm-hmm. And it was a study by Oxford University, very impressive, that says there's no safe level for drinking alcohol. Now, that's, that's a common sense reason why we shouldn't drink. But you could actually also make that a biblical reason because we're instructed to care for our physical bodies. And so the same kind of arguments we would use against drinking, uh, smoking tobacco would apply to drinking alcohol. Uh, They'll get a break, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll get the connection restored. Uh, Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Here we go. There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN, it's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock, it's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 128. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. 12% of the websites on the internet are pornographic. 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. 25% of all search engine requests are pornography related. 35% of all Internet downloads are pornographic. The average age at which a child first sees pornography online is 11. That information is via United Families International. The Word of God says in Job 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3, 17. Now, back to the program. Here's a quick thought. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 34, 6. How great and powerful is God. He spoke the universe into existence. Even the earth operates in precision by his will. Find ways to bring praise to our awesome God today. Seize the day.
And we're back uh, after a little bit of a technical glitch there, but we're back. And um, no doubt, don't even was, know where we are, but we're back. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about just uh, some well-established uh, studies that are indicating it's not healthy. You know, one of the arguments that was made for many years is it's it's healthy to have a glass of wine every day. It's good for your health. Yeah. That's that's pretty much been completely debunked now. Yep. And and this study from Oxford University says there's no safe level of alcoholic consumption. And so, you know, that again, that's just a common sense argument. But it's also a biblical argument because we're instructed to, to care for our physical bodies. One of the arguments we make about using tobacco is it harms your physical body. We, we can we now have scientific basis for making that same argument against using alcohol yeah david sent me an email or a, a, an article this afternoon uh late uh about about alcohol and the fact that alcohol is an incredible solvent uh and it has incredible chemical properties that are very helpful to us uh in the industrial world and in everyday life but when those when we, we ingest the alcohol it does the same thing in our body and it's 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 interfering with those nerve chemicals the chemicals around our nerves the the uh, lining around our nerves and so forth it's causing it's doing that same harm to our body like it would do you know you could use some alcohol to take the sticky off of a of you know something this some grime or something off of 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 surface it's taking it's doing stuff like that in our body and it's causing harm yeah exactly all right all right real quickly uh as you say we may go a few minutes past the hour here to get this in but uh what I asked the question, oh, how well, you, you, uh, is you, the you, word wine used in the Bible? Before you do, you ask if there's oh. any science. And here's what Kent says about it. He says, medical science give ev- gives evidence that moderate social drinking has various effects on the brain. The frontal lobe of the brain loses the ability to reason correctly and therefore by, has negative implications on one's sociability and intelligence. The parietal lobe of the brain suffers a loss of motor skills and slower reaction time. The temporal lobe of the brain suffers loss of uh, slurred speech and impaired hearing. The oct- the pedal lobe of the brain, I didn't even know I had one of those, uh, suffers that of impaired vision and distant judge, distance judgment. The cerebellum of the brain suffers lack of muscle coordination and balance. Also, alcohol destroys brain cells that cannot be repaired. Uh, let's see. Um, and, um, okay. Um, oh, well, let's take Grant here. He's, he's, he's not going to chime in on the science part, but he says, from a personal note, uh, that I have experienced the dangers of drinking alcohol. My grandfather was an alcoholic, my mother was an alcoholic, and sister of a law of mine died from alcohol poisoning. So Grant knows what it's about. That gets pretty close to home, doesn't it? Grant knows. Uh, Dwight says it appears minds to think rashly, alcoholism, liver damage, and they even say buzz driving is drunk driving. Thank you, uh, Dwight, for that. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, sorry for the... Uh, uh, the the fact that we dropped out on uh, uh, YouTube, apparently. We're trying to get back. We're going to cover the last couple of points. The last couple of questions we had out there were, how is the word wine used in the Bible? I think probably most all of our listeners understand that the word wine, in both Old Testament usage Hebrew and New Testament usage Greek, the word wine could mean in those times either what we would simply refer to as grape juice, or it could refer to fermented, intoxicating, alcoholic wine. They didn't have a distinction. If I use the word wine today, everybody understands I mean alcoholic, intoxicating drink. That was not the case either in Old Testament times or New Testament times. Uh, 
a, a good example of that. And I think uh, most of us are familiar with Isaiah 65, verse 8. Isaiah 65, verse 8, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. Wine found in the cluster. So you got a cluster of grapes. There's wine in there. What would that wine be? Well, it'd have to be what we would refer to as grape juice. It certainly wasn't fermented or intoxicating. And so that that one verse shows that biblically, the context has to be, sometimes wine can mean intoxicating drink. Other times it just means grape juice. That being the case, you've got to let the context dictate which is under consideration. Do not make the false assumption that every time you read the word wine in the Bible, it means intoxicating drink because that is not the case. And, and you know, sometimes people want to look at the idea that wine and being merry, you know, you, you've heard people make that argument where, you know, it's talking about them having wine and it, it causes them to be merry. I, I came across this the other day in Judges chapter 9, verse 27. They went out into the fields and gathered their vineyards and trod the grapes and made merry. They're squeezing the grape juice out. Right then. And they're making merry. They were happy. It, it, they're happy. And, and, and food and, and, uh, and things like that make us happy. A harvest makes us happy. Yeah. They were, so just because you read that they had wine and they were making merry doesn't mean that they're getting drunk. Yeah. Um, now, some might say, well, that's just, that's just a bunch of hogwash that, that wine would mean not, would mean non-alcoholic, that it could mean grape juice. No, nobody would think that. Well, we still have the same use of words. I've, and I've learned recently that within maybe the last hundred years, even in the United States, that wine could mean grape juice. That somebody had referenced a uh, thing for, I think, Welch's grape juice and called it wine. So it, it, in English, even, it's done that. But we have a, Greek, a word today that we use the same way, cider. If someone yeah. says, I, we, had, we, went, we had cider. We had some cider. That could be alcoholic, or it could be non-fermented. So there's an example, modern example. We still have that it ter- that lack of delineation in our language yeah, today. Yeah, good point. So good point. it's not a stretch to say, well, in the in the Greek language, that it would could mean non-alcoholic. It, it certainly could. Yeah. Okay. All right. Real quickly, because we're going to be over time, but we had some technical difficulties out of our control, sadly. But I don't know. I think it was Kyle did something over there. He's just keeping quiet about it. Kyle's over there typing. Yeah, on Kyle's the he's hanging down low below all those monitors over there. Yeah, yeah, show your face now. Come on. All right. So we asked the question. So we asked, so there's our answer to the word. By the way, we need to probably get our emailers on that. Uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, how's the word used? Uh, Kent says in the New Testament, the basic term used is the word oinos, which such speaks with reference to either fermented or unfermented byproducts of byproducts of the Greek of the grape. The contextual usage of the word determines whether the term wine refers to alcohol or unfermented grape juice. It is significant that the term oinos is never used regarding the Lord's Supper. The phrase fruit of the vine is the exclusive phrase used, implying that only unfermented grape juice is used in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul uses the term oinos relative to the word wine. That's where he commanded Paul to use such because of physical illness. Obviously, Timothy had not been using this element, and he had to be told to use such. If the term used there speaks with reference to alcoholic wine, Timothy had not been using such socially or moderately. 
Okay. And then uh, Grant says the, the Greek word is oinos. Biblical scholars agreed that in the Septuagint or Greek translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word oinos referred to the corresponds to the Hebrew word yainin. Yayin. Yayin. Stuart says in the New Testament, we have oinos, which corresponds exactly to the Hebrew yayin. Both yayin and oinos are generic words. They designate the juice of the grape in all its stages. So we must look at the context to determine whether fermented or unfermented exactly wine is referred to. Right. Dwight says uh, uh, wine is used in both ways. Wine has grape juice, such as the Lord's Supper, and the nearest wine we are to abstain from, the intoxicating drink. Okay. All right. All right. Quickly. Number six. Number six was true or false. Men in Bible times did not know how to preserve grape juice to prevent fermentation. The answer is false. Oh, false. They did know how. Uh, there were some commonly used methodologies, uh, and, and and there's some really. I, mean, I want I want to say, with all due respect and kindness, that the people who make that statement are completely unstudied and uninformed, because you do not have to look very hard to be able to find out that men of antiquity had multiple methods for keeping grape juice in an unfermented state. And it was the prized state of the grape juice, not yeah. the fermented. Yeah. They they wanted the non-fermented. I tell you something really interesting that our listeners might want to do. Go back into 2015, October in 2015. We had Kyle Pope with us on the virtual Bible study, who had actually done a little experimenting with trying to keep grape juice from fermenting. And he was able to do it. And and he used some of the same methodologies that men of ancient times used. I have a list here from a reference work said they would separate the gluten, uh, which basically was the, 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 the skin and the pulp. It was because the skin would, would especially have the, uh, yeast, com, uh, uh, contamination that would provoke fermentation. So they would actually, they filter, they would, they would filter, uh, the juice and just by simple filtering, they could keep it, a lot of it from fermenting. They reduced the moisture. That is, they boiled it down. They made it into a syrup. When they got ready to drink it, they would reconstitute it with water. Uh, Grape juice from concentrate. They would exclude air. Yeast has to have air in order to accomplish its fermentation processes. And so if you could keep it from being exposed to air, deprive the oxygen. They were known to take wine in jars and sink them in vats of water to exclude the air. If you reduce the temperature, you can you can prevent fermentation. They would keep them in cold. They would keep grape juice in cold springs. Mm. Sulfur fumigation was known to kill the yeast cells. Sometimes you hear about smoked wines. Mm -hmm. Those were wines that had been exposed to sulfur fumes that 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 thus killed the yeast cells and prevented fermentation. There were just a lot of methods that were used. I think the most common one probably was to boil them down into syrups and then add water later when you wanted fresh grape juice. You guys who use raisins, right? Do they, 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 they take dry, raisins. Dry. Of course, that's, that in itself is kind of a dehydration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so, uh, well, George says, if unfermented wine was used in the New Testament, why was fermented wine used for the last 2,000 years in communion? Who well, says so? Yeah, yeah, we need some reference there, George. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, uh, let's see here. Do we have? Oh, yeah. Says, uh, Kent says William Patton in his book entitled Bible Wines gives information on how those who lived in the Middle East knew how to preserve grape juice and keep it from fermenting. Unfermented grape juice was a common beverage for those who lived in Bible times. 
in that part of the world. Also, Mr. Patton provided information how the ancients of that era of time understood the laws of fermentation. Good. Yeah. Thank you for that, uh, Kent. And then Grant uh, set, refers to August Calmet. Uh, uh, Augustine Calmet. Oh, uh, Augustine Calmet, yeah, sorry. The learned author of the Dictionary of the Bible from 1672 says the ancients possessed the secret of preserving wines sweet throughout the whole year. If they were alcoholic, they would preserve themselves. The peculiarity was preserving them sweet. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Chemistry tells us that as the juice loses its sweetness when by fermentation the sugar is converted to alcohol, preserving them sweet throughout the entire year meant preserving them unfermented. Chemical science instructs us that by reason of the great sweetness of the juice and the heat of the climate at the vintage, the vinous fermentation would be produced, and that unless by some method prevented, the uh, acetus would uh, certainly and speedily commence. Four modes were known and practiced by the ancients, which modern chemical science confirms. Boiling for, for sake of time, because he's basically boiling, uh, filtration, subsidence, and, and fumigation. fumigation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So again, I I, I want to say without sounding mean spirited that anybody who makes that argument that people in ancient times did not know how to preserve grape juice in unfermented state. That's an unlearned and uneducated and uninformed argument to make. It should not be made. All right, real quickly, we're past the hour, but we had some technical difficulty. Let's deal just real quickly with the old argument that Jesus made intoxicating wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Of course, the text is John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Uh let me read that real quickly. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. Now, there's a contrast between good wine and worse wine. Okay, well, what would be the reference there? Good wine or good wine can get you drunk faster. Worse wine, you got to drink more of it to get drunk. Is that is that how you judge the? No, that's a that's a reference to taste, right? Good wine versus worse wine would be a reference to what tastes better, what tastes not as good. I've often used the illustration. If you came to my house, said Jake, come over. I'm going to grill some steaks uh, Saturday night. We'll have steaks on the grill. You never said that. Well, if I did. Oh, you did. I said if I did. Okay. So you come over for steaks, but while we're just about ready to sit down to steaks, Kyle shows up. I don't have any more steaks. So I break out the hamburgers, and we grill some hamburgers. And then before long, somebody else shows up. We don't even have any more hamburgers. We start throwing hot dogs on the grill. Yeah. Commonly, what you do is you, you serve what's best first. Then if you have to fall back to something less, you do it. That's all that was happening there in the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee. The, the governor of the feast was surprised. Why have you kept what tastes better till last? You should have served what tastes better first. Uh, so, again, it, it, this was not a question as to which could get you intoxicated better, but it was a, a reference to the, the, the taste the fact of the matter is, if it, if it was a reference, and by the way, when men have well drunk, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. When men have well drunk, then that which is worse. Now, again, that does not mean 
when men are completely drunken. That just means when men have had their desire satiated. They've 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 had plenty of, of the juice. Uh, why did you keep the good until people are were, were already well satisfied with what they'd already consumed? If it meant that they were drunk, then Jesus provided hundreds of gallons of more intoxicating wine to people who were already drunk. Now think about that for a minute. If Jesus, if the if the wine Jesus made at the wedding feast in Cana was intoxicating wine, we're going to see here, and I think Grant does an analysis how much. By all estimates, he produced hundreds of gallons. If it was intoxicating wine, he was producing hundreds of gallons of more intoxicating wine to people who were already drunk. Everybody says drunkenness is a sin. So Jesus was aiding and abetting and getting sinners to sin more. Is that right? That doesn't work, does it? Doesn't work. Habakkuk 2, Habakkuk 2 verse 15. Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth the bottle before him, that maketh him drunk also. Uh, Jesus would have sinned in making people drunk if that, if that wine at the wedding feast was intoxicating wine. Mohan says there's no indication that the wine mentioned is alcoholic wine. Kent says he did not create alcoholic wine. The wedding feast had exhausted the supply of wine. That is, they had well drunk. In consideration of the measurements of the water pots of stone containing the water that Jesus turned to wine, had Jesus turned the water into fermented wine, he would provide enough of an alcoholic beverage for those attending this wedding feast to be really loaded and downright smashed. Such would have been a violation of the Old Testament law to which, as a Jew, he was amenable, Habakkuk 2, verse 15. And uh, Grant says, "Jesus, no, Jesus changed water from six stone water pots containing 20 to 30 gallons of water each into good, beautiful wine. That equated to 120 to 180 gallons of good, beautiful wine. Did Jesus exert his miraculous power to produce between 120 to 180 gallons of wine, which bites like a serpent, Proverbs 23, verse 32, stings like a viper, Proverbs 23, verse 32, is the venom of serpents, Deuteronomy 32, verse 33. Is the deadly poison of cobras, Deuteronomy 32, verse 33. Did Jesus exert his miraculous power to produce between 120 to 180 gallons of wine, which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, Psalm 104, verse 15, which is manifest, which manifested his glory, John 2, verse 11. The necessary conclusion must be that Jesus produced unfermented wine. This festification furnishes no sanctification for the use of alcoholic wine of, co- of commerce at weddings at the present time, much less for the use of them on other occasions. Thank you, Grant. And then Dwight says, uh, this is speaking of new wine, which is not fermented wine. Jesus made the good wine for people to drink. I cannot even imagine Jesus making intoxicating wine for people to get drunk on. It does, uh, does not make sense, as Dwight uh, says there. Um, so, um, you know, people are saying that Jesus made wine and going as far as saying that Jesus drank alcoholic wine when he was here on earth. That song that was referenced by Kent there, a beer with Jesus. That's, uh, that's getting to be more and more common, even by Christians today, that Jesus was, Jesus imbibed. And we can know for certain that he didn't. Yeah. Uh, Proverbs chapter 31 the mule is told it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Proverbs 31, God inspired that. 
Jesus was a king. There is a king. It's not for kings to drink. They're not supposed to do it. Leviticus uh, chapter 10 says that priests aren't supposed to drink. Jesus is our high priest. And Jesus, we are priests. Jesus did not imbibe. The scriptures are very clear on that. Jesus was not, he wasn't a candidate for imbibing, nor are Christians today as we follow his steps. Uh, we cannot be engaged in the consumption of intoxicating beverages. It's yeah. plain and it's clear. Uh, but I think we'll probably have some listeners who disagree with us. I think George is in the chat room, and George uh, disagrees uh, with us, I believe. Uh, there's a, there's a, we don't have time to cover it, but there's a, been an exchange back and forth in the chat room between George and Nick. Uh, and George is trying to make the point that once we put out the grape juice for the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning, it begins to ferment. Therefore, we cannot say that we're using unfermented wine, uh, unfermented grape juice in the Lord's Supper, which I think is a really bogus argument. But we'd we're be not, glad for George to join us in a virtual yeah. Bible study. Yeah. Uh, and we, we can discuss it in person if you'd like. Yeah, George, we would welcome you for that. Do that. And we'd, we'd do that with a... Uh with a with a, a, a calm and uh, and cordial demeanor here, we would welcome you to come and uh, to and to to argue uh, your view standpoint and your views with us and 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 to show us why you believe we're wrong. Yeah. Uh, contact us, please, George. Questions at collegeview.com or anyone who disagrees with us. Questions at collegeview.com. We'd like to hear your reasoning uh, from the scriptures on why you believe it is acceptable. Kyle, uh, thanks for giving us the tip today for the topic. Uh, any comments on that side of the board tonight no it's a good study i think it's always a necessary study so that was good okay all right sorry for our technical problem that's the first time that's happened i guess in quite maybe ever where we've just basically dropped our youtube stream had to restart it that's why there was some confusion there about getting the link back uh, up because we came up with a different we're link have some to, do the to snip these two things and yeah. glue them together but with hopefully we'll get it out there uh, all right. Thanks, Kyle, for being here. Thank you, Dad, for your time. Thanks, Thank you for joining us. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. And we hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.